show by fans for fans. My name's Eric Morrow, Seattle Mariners baseball, everybody. Let's get started. That smile is back on Junior's face. Line drive, base hit to win it. Welcome to Casuals Corner, October 8th, 2023. Here we are looking at ourselves sitting at home, not making the playoffs. You guys know this by now. And there's been a ton of drama going on about the team. And, and that's what I consider it to be really drama anyhow. And uh, so nobody's happy. We've got the Texas Rangers knocking the tar out of the Baltimore Orioles. And uh, Baltimore looked really tough this year, and uh, and Texas is is just annihilating them. Um, we'll see what happens in tonight's game. Anyhow, I am happy to have my guest and co-host here tonight. First, my co-host Tyler Matsumoto. How are you tonight, buddy? I'm doing well, my friend. I feel a little bit naked because I don't have the Mariners to listen or watch to at night. Other teams are still playing, but that's how it is. We know we fell a little bit short. Yeah, that's right. So is what it is, people. Uh, baseball owes you nothing. I mean, it's not going to give you anything. You either earn it or you don't. And if you don't, then you sit home like the Yankees are doing too. Um I also got our guest here tonight, and I'm so glad that you took time to join us. Brian, how are you tonight, buddy? Hey, I'm uh, I'm doing all right. I appreciate y'all having me on. I know uh, you and I have been talking about doing this for a while now. It's a lot of fun when you get to, uh, you know, you, you when you talk about team on social media, you, you meet up with folks who you really get along with, and you're like, Yes, yes, yes. And then Brian's so well written that uh, he says everything I want to say plus more. So, you know, you've always been somebody who I would love to have on the show. Yeah, no, I, I appreciate that. You know, I uh, <laughs> sometimes spend a little more time crafting some of the things I say than uh, I probably have time for in reality. But, uh, you know, I, you know, for me, I want to make sure what I'm saying is actually factual. You know, it's it's one thing to just put stuff out there. It's another thing to actually have it mean something and actually be valuable information. Absolutely. Absolutely. And then I'm sure Tyler's going to have a couple questions for you about the team. We know how the team did. We're not in the playoffs. I want to talk to you about something that you seem to know a lot about just from and I don't mean to butter you up about that, but we've agreed on, let's do it that way. We've agreed on the rebuild that it's, that it's not guaranteed. And then it's modeled after the Houston Astros. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, this is kind of built off of what Houston did a little bit of kind of what the Cubs did in the past too, with, with Chris Bryant and Rizzo and, and all those guys as well. And so there's a, there's a pattern of how these have been kind of, drawn up but houston's kind of the closest model we just kind of did it on a uh i don't want to say on a lighter scale as in uh there, there's a lot less tanking involved than what houston did you know houston was much worse for a much longer time than what uh what jerry and, and the rest of the front office has, has attempted to do why is that you know i, I 
That's a really good question. You know, I think part of it is, uh, you know, I, I think the sentiment with the, the fans and, and everything else and everything that Mariners fans have been through. And, uh, you know, when you actually look at it, and I've, I've had conversations on Bleach Report with some of the Astros that come over to our community about it is, you know, our franchises are actually fairly similar as a whole when you look back at prior history you know i think they've got a couple more division championships in general but as far as true track record and history i mean they made their first world series at 43 years of a franchise we're at 46 right now so yeah we're behind on that aspect but they didn't win a world series game until uh was it i don't have the number in front of me uh 55 i want to say it was when they made it in 2017 yeah, 55. So, you know, there's a very similar track record of, you know, when we had really good teams, both teams have had Hall of Fame players at the same time and, and really good runs. But unfortunately, it coincided with a really good team in the East. You know, we couldn't quite get past the Yankees dynasty that was going on, and the Astros kept running into the Braves dynasty. And so both franchises have been through a lot, and heck, even when the Braves finally started subsiding a little bit and the Astros finally had a moment Pujols rose up and then was the thorn on their side and gave them their version of what we dealt with with Jordan in game one of the ALDS last year when uh, Pujols smashed a home run off the glass over the train tracks and uh, effectively broke their closer at the time Brad Lidge he was never the same in Houston they had to get moved over to Philadelphia to become really good again or what he used to be you know I think the main thing is you know we were in a drought for you know, at that point, 16, 17 years when we uh, we decided to do this, this, as Jerry called it, step back. Because um, he was trying to avoid the word, I think, full teardown rebuild, which is closer to what we were trying to do. And I think with the drought being as far as it was, the idea of completely tearing it down and becoming, doing exactly what the Astros did, which was effectively lose, I want to say they lost 455 games over a four-year, five-year period. And I, I think the sentiment where our fan base was is if you tried to attempt that, it was not going to be a very well-received narrative. I mean, we already have folks that reference the fact that Jerry's been here eight years and has one playoff appearance. And a lot of folks say that without the context of what the Cano years were and and then the three year three three years of rebuild on top of that i mean ladies and gentlemen if you can't tell the difference um i don't want to say anything mean but if you can't tell the difference between reality and fantasy um you know baseball's not for you i just want to emphasize that you know these these fellas know and you might not but i feel i'm the anti-seattle fan in that I have so much respect for Houston as an organization. I know that they're cheaters and whatnot, but what they've built as a sustainable baseball model is awesome. They've lost a few superstars and are right back in the mix, going to World Series, competing for titles. I know that Jerry has the same sort of admiration for what Houston has done as an organization. Brian, do you just want to maybe uh, tell everybody 
maybe some basic similarities and maybe some differences between how the two ball clubs have gone about this major rebuild? Yeah, no, absolutely. So, and I'll say this, I do kind of echo a lot of your sentiments when it comes to the Astros. I, I'm also from a, a very different experience as I actually live down here in Texas. So I'm, I'm, I've gotten to see a lot of this firsthand. And I think that's some of the difference when a lot of folks look at it and they're like, well, we're nothing like the Astros, blah, blah, blah. Well, we actually are. And I, and I think a lot of people didn't really see how that sausage was made, for lack of a better term. Uh, you know, they, they went fully into the tank. They took, I think, three first overall picks and I think five years of top five picks. You know, it's where you get, you know, Correa and Springer and Bregman, all those guys, your top five picks they got there and you know they went you know bottom up trying to fully tear it down rebuild it lose as many games to get as high draft picks and build up that that equity and uh you know obviously we didn't quite go to that point we never really had i think our highest pick if i remember correctly and you correct me here i believe it's seventh overall and that was kyle lewis and beyond that we were always in that seven to probably 12 or 15 range because we never quite bottomed out like they did. Um, but the general idea is to build up this youth of talent. And, and we more so did it by uh, trading a bunch of guys out and, and getting some of that prospect equity for the first wave to kind of start building through. And then our, our draft picks, we drafted college guys that were going to move quickly through the ranks to be able to start streamlining some of that rebuild um, versus getting some high school guys that we're going to take a little longer that sometimes have a little higher upside, but it's going to take a longer process to get to that point. And there's a lot more uncertainty with high school players on top of it because they do have to fill out. They have to evolve. They have to mature. And there's a, there's a lot more room for error going from 18 to whenever they hopefully get called up at 24. Did I answer your question there? Oh, it, it was wonderful, and I appreciate it. And even if you go off on any different direction, I'm just trying to lead you out there and tell us what you think, and we're all very, very happy about it. Yeah, so, I mean, I think the other thing I'd expand on is, I, you know, I think there's this misconception out there in, in how the Astros were built, and we look at it and say, well, you know, we have to compete with them, which we do. And, you know, you know, they went and spent a lot of money. They've spent money. But when you look at their free agent spending, it's been very minimal. Up until this past year when they signed Abreu, their biggest contract was uh, three years and 36 or 39 million. And that was Josh Reddick and then Michael Brantley. Those are the, the big free agent acquisitions the other deals that they did here and there were the other only well, the only other one they did was beltron carlos beltron the shell of what was left at F. carlos beltron going into the 2017 season they signed him a one-year 17 million dollar deal and that's the largest aav that they spent prior to abreu throughout this entire process of what they built and uh you know, I know you mentioned earlier you got a lot of respect for them and what they've built and obviously the whole cheating scandal. And, uh, you know, obviously that is a thing. And it does put a mark on that 17 championship. 
but it doesn't change the fact that they've been to six straight ALCSs. And you can't do that. And that's including past when this cheating scandal came to light. And obviously they were under a microscope and I'm sure for the most part, they still do. Yeah. Everybody hates them because they're so good, right? Exactly. I mean, we've never really seen a run like this where a team is just six straight ALCSs. They've been to the World Series, what, four out of those six? And they've won two of them. I mean, that's a that's an incredible run. And, uh, you know, it goes far beyond the, the trash cans and, and everything. Um, and they've they've even reinvented their roster over time and lost, you know, Correa and Springer, which were two of the three headed monster at that point when they first started out and they're still just keep going. Yeah. Like you said, I haven't watched Houston baseball like you have. Hey, can I, maybe I'm going to steer you off course a little bit, but I'm curious to know, um, how does a Texan become a Seattle Mariners fan and what relation do you have to the team or how, how's it work for you? Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's funny enough. So, you know, my family, my mom, my dad, they're both from different areas. My mom's a Phillies fan. My dad's a Cubs fan. They all ended up down here and, uh, you know, somehow raised a Mariners fan. But, I, you know, I, I loved the game of baseball growing up and I was always very close to it. If I wasn't on the field playing, I was watching and taking everything in. And, you know, at that formative time, there was a, uh, a very incredible superstar out there for the Mariners that, you know, we all know and love. And, and Ken Griffey and I grew very attached to it and, and how he played the game and his love for the game and and uh, just just stuck and so I'm a, I'm a displaced Mariners fan but uh, you know go to as many games as I can here in Texas whenever they come down here and uh, you know enjoy getting to spend that time and see them when I can and, and now luckily with the invention of MLB TV and everything else I get to watch them regularly no matter where they are which is uh, something that was a lot harder to do when I was growing up. <laughs> yes, of course. And that's just a reminder, ladies and gentlemen, that uh, uh, if you are out of market like I am, I'm in you know, I'm in the Mesa area, uh, Arizona, and this old boy's from Texas. And, you know, you can get, for $25, you can watch every Mariners game they show. So it's a good deal if you haven't uh, gotten onto that. Because out of market... You, you can watch in market. You can't stupid. Um, Tyler, what else would I, I guess what I want to know, and I'm, I'm sorry, Tyler, but we've talked about the similarities. What are the differences? Uh, what differences can you tell me about it, Brian? Yeah. I mean, I think the biggest one and the most telling one is, is honestly the, the duration and, and just how bad that rebuild was, you know, uh, I had the general experience of knowing a lot of Astros fans and, and a lot of them really <laughs> suffered, you know, uh, not to say we haven't all suffered over here on our end as well, but going through that rebuild and seeing teams that just were literally, uh, intentionally meant to just lose as much as possible. And so the, the quality of, of some of those draft picks that are, that built up the original rebuild were just better caliber. But I think the other thing is they, they had a much better uh, ability. And I think part of it has to do with the pedigree of the players that they drafted because they were drilling with top five picks. When you're talking about those hitters is developing hitting, 
their hitting development came along in general, I think a lot faster than ours has. And, and I think a part of that is probably the pandemic. You know, you had a whole bunch of players you drafted that either they went to the alternate training site, which was only a handful of them, or they had to sit at home. And so you didn't get game reps for a whole year. You were sitting there, you're working on drills on your own, which are leaving players their own devices. And, and I'm sure they were sending home, sending out plans to their prospects and stuff to, to work on their spare time. But it's not the same as getting game reps and seeing live pitching. And even if you were at the alternate site, you were still really not seeing the same thing because it's not real in-game atmosphere. I'm sure they tried to make it as similar as they could, but it's still not the same. And so I think that's the other part of it is a lot of our prospects at a really formative time lost a year of progress right there in the middle in the heart of those guys working to attain that next level. That's just the one thing I wanted to point out. It came at a very delicate time for the Seattle Mariners. You know, that was right when they grow, 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 and it shut baseball down and really hurt the team because it was, if you don't play baseball, you lose it. You either play baseball or you don't. They play it all year round nearly. So, um, Tyler, you know, I felt like a, just being a hog with this, this mic but it seems like me and brian been chatting together for probably a year and year and a half now what questions might you have well i have a couple of pretty key ones i would say and both of them kind of relate the mariners rebuild to the astros rebuild and we always like to lean on whatever knowledge our guest has So we'll just go one at a time, Brian. But my first one is just looking at both teams when they were attempting to make their rebuild. It feels that M's spent more resources on young pitching and the Astros maybe more on young hitting. Am I right or wrong? Is it coincidental? Do either team value either side of the ball more or my personal preference for any sport are these teams just looking for the best players and figure out the rest later yeah i mean i think it's definitely a a get the best players figure out the rest later to a certain extent but I, i you know i think even the astros tried to do a little bit of both you know obviously we know about the the springers and correas and and bregman's and, and even Tucker, you know, that they all drafted and developed. But there's also a slew of pitchers they drafted near the top in, uh, uh, what is it, uh, Mark Appel, and I can't remember the other couple names. But they spent some some top draft, draft equity on pitchers. Those guys just didn't pan out. You know, they, they saw some guys at different levels that either they traded for or whatnot that they developed instead. But the guys they spent equity on in the draft – early on on the pitching side it just didn't pan out like we did with with kirby and gilbert and now we're seeing Wu and, and miller and, and hancock come along you know and it seems like you know maybe it's just the way our our farm system and, and the coaching in the minors is but we seem to hit on all those guys and obviously you know Wu and miller are still early on you know and, and they still have some work to do but i think they both showed a lot of promise uh, this year stepping into a 
a difficult situation and having to try and stem the tide and fill that gap without Ray and, and Marco and then Hancock went down and we lost Easton McGee in the process, which is, it's crazy to think how many guys we lost this year in the starting rotation. There was no luck in it, was there, Tyler? Absolutely not. We talk about regression to the mean a lot, Eric, and that's exactly what happened. I mean, last season, the Mariners didn't lose a single starting pitcher to a missed start, so we knew that there was some bad luck around the corner, and it sure as heck happened. Well, the 2016 team lost every single starter that year and was just and we didn't have near the pitching staff we do now. I don't know if it's 16 or 17, but one of those years, they lost every one of their starters. So, I mean, this is what I talk about when I say baseball owes you nothing, ladies and gentlemen. You're not going to get anything but what you get. And sometimes it isn't always pleasant. So, anyhow, um, let's not worry about that tonight. Um, you're not a fire service guy or any kind of thing like that, right? You're, you've got some pretty good ideas about this team, don't you, Brian? Yeah, you know, I, I've not always been the biggest service fan. I'm not going to say I always have been. Uh, I think he has evolved over time. You know, I think the Cano teams were flawed. You know, it, there was just enough there to give us a little bit of hope, but not enough really there on meat on the bone to get us over the top and really make us a true contender. Yeah. And you have a Seattle crowd that's expecting something from you and expecting something. I mean, it's a team that's, it's a team that's failed, um, you know, a couple times in a row, a couple, three times in a row, you know, if ladies and gentlemen, if you guys cannot capture the context of what Scott services career has been over, you can't tell that there was a veteran, old, worn-out veteran team for two years. There was a total rebuild, or nearly total rebuild, maybe not down to the studs like Houston, but a pretty big rebuild. And then COVID hit, right when your fruits, right when your products are starting to grow, right when your hitters are starting to get uh, their feet under them. Um, and we compete in a very tough division. And that's kind of what I've gotten out of this conversation so far, uh, Tyler. Yeah, it hasn't been easy. I I don't want to speak for you necessarily, but I think we both feel that we're kind of getting on a make it or break it type of year. We can't emphasize enough that 2020 was so bad for the Mariners organization. I remember looking at my brother one day and I told him only the Seattle Mariners would be in a giant rebuild and have the minor league seasons canceled. And that, that that would only happen in a Mariners type of world. But Service, he's done a great job developing young players and having his hand in it. He at least deserves at one or two more years. He was what? Top two, top three for manager of the year the last two seasons previous, and now all of a sudden he stinks. To me, that doesn't happen overnight. You got to look at the totality of what he's done. That being said, I just want to swing this over to Brian really quick, Eric, and 
I feel the Mariners are at a pivotal moment as an organization. So I look at what the Astros did, and one of the reasons you want to build a really good farm system is not only to bring up your own homegrown ballers, but you can also also have great trade chips. I remember the Astros were really, really good. They trade for Garrett Cole. They trade for Justin Verlander. And these type of top-notch players can help put you over the top. Now, the Mariners are probably looking for hitters more than aces. But nonetheless, Brian, do you think it's time that the Mariners stick their flag in the ground right now and maybe move some more young guys, if possible, to try to make a serious move towards a World Series rather than the wild card? Yeah, you know, I it's 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 interesting. You know, I always, you know, when we talk about this stuff, and I'm sure y'all see me mention it on Bleach Report, I always kind of look back and mirror things off of the blueprint. Because that's the easiest way to look at this is to mirror it to what's been done before, what we're copying, and see how far off have we have we gotten? Have we deviated from that? Are we on track? Are we doing something similar? And it's honestly, it's it's funny to see how eerie it is. And obviously, there's there's differences between you know we've had better success with the pitching side, the hitting side, um, but as a whole, we've we've done things very similar. Now, key deviations that I've seen is is we actually went out and, and acquired Ray in free agency and spent 115 million on that, which is not something that the Astros ever did working through the rebuild. You know, they they kind of kept grooming everything inside and they'd make those trades like you saw with Verlander. And, you know, that was a great, huge trade for them, which funny enough, didn't happen until the waiver trade deadline, which obviously doesn't exist anymore. Um, in the very end of August in 2017, which their entire fan base, a handful of their players all basically revolted, made comments in the press about not making a bigger splash at the 2017 trade deadline that they didn't feel like ownership was really behind them and everything else. And then obviously this happens at the waiver trade deadline. The rest is kind of history from there, you know, but they traded three different prospects that honestly, none of those guys panned out. I mean, Jake Rogers, Franklin Perez, Daz Cameron. Have we ever heard those names since in Detroit? I know I haven't. So, you know, that one, they got, took advantage of the fact that that was a salary dump Detroit was still paying Verlander a ton of money, had another year on it, and they had no real prospect of competing. There was no path for them to do that. So they took this trade to get out of the remainder of it because he had another year on the contract for 2018. And obviously from there, Houston extended him, which kind of has a similar uh, Luis Castillo feel to it for me. Obviously the prospect capital is a little bit different there, but because the the Contract's not the same, obviously. What about the the unicorn? What about Otani? Well, they throw up, you know, there's some folks that even think that maybe they've been just really keeping their powder dry, uh, trying to get Otani. Do you think that's realistic or is that just overblown? How do you feel about that, Brian? And I'll ask you about it again, Tyler, if you don't mind, but I know you've answered it several times. Um, But anyhow, Otani, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think at the end of the day, if he wants to come here, you find a way to make it happen. Um, yeah, you know, when they started this whole step back rebuild, one of the very first things that Jerry said was, 
we're going to pull back on the, the payroll for the next couple of years as we work through this rebuild to build up a basically a, a war chest uh, for when the time was right to go out there, be aggressive and capitalize. If I'm looking at things, I feel like we're at that point. We've built up that war chest. We've been extremely profitable. We've made a lot of money. You know, we've got a lot of young, controllable players. And quite frankly, if Otani wants to come here, you, you just simply make it happen. You, you find the way. You figure out the number, and you make that deal. Because I think, I think we've seen in the past, you know, a talent like that will eventually pay for himself. I, not even eventually. I think he pays for himself right off the bat. So if you can find a way to make that happen, and I think Jerry's the most, at least from what I've seen, one of the more creative GMs when it comes to deals. I mean, no one's put together a type of deal that that Julio has, where it's got that many contingencies and fail-safes and everything else that's built into that thing, that if anyone can come up with something that uh, accommodates the fact that he's going to be just a hitter next year, could pitch in the future. We don't know what that's going to look like. That's a very open-ended question. You know, does he slide back into the rotation? Does his arm hold up after this second surgery? Who knows? We really don't know that. So I feel like you're going to have to build some sort of contingency at it in it and figure out a way to make it work. And I think Jerry's creative enough to do so. For everything that I've seen, and obviously I don't know him personally, but just the comments that you hear here and there about Otani, all those storylines and stuff that we heard about him when he was first coming over and being posted. He doesn't seem like he's a guy that's truly just driven by dollars. And I don't think that's what this is going to come down to. And I, I feel like that, I mean, the money's going to be there. Don't get me wrong, but I don't think it's coming down to who writes the extra million dollars into the contract or extra 10 million into it, because he's also seen what's happened with the angels. And he's a very studious, intelligent person from everything that has been written and talked about and seen that there's no way he sees all those contracts and all the issues that has been created in the angels organization because of it and says, give me as much money as possible because I just want to collect. He wants to compete. And if you want to compete, you can't burn up all the powder on your one contract and expect it all to work out. I mean, if that's what it's about and he wants to do both, then I think it's just automatically the Dodgers because they've seen find a way to make it work on both ends and they spend as much as needed and they're not run like the Mets are. <laughs> Well, that's the thing, spend as much as you need. Uh, Tyler, tell me about Otani. Has anything changed for you? What, do you? what are your thoughts on Brian's comments? Well, gosh, you guys know how much I love this guy. And I also look at it from the perspective, if maybe he never pitches again, because he's that good of a hitter. His speed is that awesome. How many guys, you know, can hit 45 home runs and have near 10 triples in the same season. That's the athletic hitter that he is. I still have my major reservations now. And you're right, Eric. A lot of it was because CEO Stanton, chairman of the board, was lukewarm at best when asked about this a couple of months ago. I'm hoping that he's being a good poker player, trying not to let the rest of the league in on the Mariners trade secrets. Otani would be an incredible addition, 
but I'm also looking at other avenues right now to improve the lineup, which desperately needs it. You can say what you want about our pitching staff down the stretch, the bullpen at times, but the pitching staff was awesome this year. Absolutely awesome when you look at it through the lens of 162 baseball games. So obviously we need help in the lineup. Otani with an over 1,000 OPS this season. Incredible. But there are other options out there that we need to consider. And here's one thing, you know, Eric and Brian, is it's like, what if you spent all your time trying to get one date from this one lady and then she says no and you have no one to go on the date with? Well, I'm kind of worried that if we spend so much time trying to get Otani, that there will be no one else left that we didn't pay attention to, and now we have nobody to go to the dance with. Well, the way I see it is Otani is so important as a player uh, and and uh, as somebody, an individual we've seen, uh, you know, if you, we have a special relationship with, with Japanese players, I believe. Uh, I believe that is the only advantage Seattle Mariners have had in their lives um, is that Japanese legends, maybe they'll play in Seattle. We've had Japanese owners. There's just been a, a partnership there, you know, uh, uh, helping through. And, and Tyler, I know that, do you have any, I mean, even in our society, you got guys that are more uptight and worried about money and you got guys that are more kicked back and, you know, we're all different. Um, any insight on why he loves Seattle, Tyler, or just what, what do you have to say? Well, for one thing, Eric, is the Pacific Northwest has an extremely proud Asian American community, Japanese Americans in particular. You know myself, I'm a half Japanese American. I love baseball. I'm a second baseman. Take it even several steps further. You know, I'm sure Otani knows about the Japanese Americans on the West Coast during World War II. My family was sent to live in the internment camps. They became one of the greatest military units in United States history during World War II. There is an unbelievable amount of Japanese-American pride in the Pacific Northwest. Obviously, the baseball speaks for itself with the Mariners, with Ichiro, Sasaki, oh, Kenji Jojima, several relievers and starters I can't think of right now. There's so many. Eric Kuma, or did I get that right? There we go. Yeah, Kuma was a stud. The greatest Robin that Felix could have. Felix being Batman, that is. So I really like you asking me that question, Eric. There's so many reasons beyond the obvious. And then just from the team building aspect, I love that he's a free agent. Because so many hitters that I look at, we would have to make a trade for. All Otani is going to cost his money. And you've heard me say it a thousand times. He's not just a player acquisition, he's an investment. 
Welcome to Navigating the Numbers. I'm your host, Camden, and together we're diving into the wonderful world of baseball analytics. Join us as we decode the numbers that define the game, hitting, pitching, fielding, and beyond. It's the language of baseball, and I'm here to help you decode it. Whether you're a seasoned fan or new to the sport, get ready for a journey through the stats and saber metrics that add depth to America's pastime. This is Navigating the Numbers on the Casuals Corner Podcast. Let's dive in together. Before we get into the numbers, let's answer a fundamental question. What are analytics? Simply put, it's the art of using data to get a deeper understanding of the game. These stats go beyond batting average and ERA to paint a clearer picture of a player's performance, contributions to his team, and help teams develop strategy and even attempt to predict future outcomes. Stats have come a long way since the days of handwritten scorecards. The advent of technology and advanced stats like WAR, WOBA, and FIP have fundamentally changed the game. Teams now rely on complex models to make decisions from player acquisition to in-game strategy. One of the earliest and most famous examples of analytics in action is the Moneyball story. The Oakland A's, led by general manager Billy Bean, used data-driven decisions to compete against wealthier teams with far more resources. Their success showcased how analytics could level the playing field. To navigate these numbers effectively, we need reliable data sources. MLB's StatCast system, for instance, tracks every pitch, hit, and play on the field. This wealth of information allows analysts to dissect every aspect from a pitcher's spin rate to a hitter's launch angle and a fielder's catch probability. One of the most comprehensive statistics we have to measure a player's contributions is war or wins above replacement. War measures a player's value in all facets of the game by deciphering how many more wins he's worth than a replacement level player at his same position. For example, a minor league replacement or a readily available fill-in free agent. If a shortstop and a first baseman offer the same overall production on offense, defense, and the base paths, the shortstop will have a better war because his position sees a lower level of production from replacement level players. Given the nature of the calculation and potential measurement errors, war should be used as a guide for separating groups of players and not as a precise estimate. For example, a player that has been worth 4.2 war and a player that has been worth 3.9 war over the course of a season cannot be distinguished from one another. It is simply too close for this particular tool to tell them apart. War can tell you that these two players are likely about equal in value, but you need to dig deeper to separate them. However, a 6.4 war player and a 4.2 war player, different enough that you can have a high level of confidence that the first player has been more valuable to their team over the given season. An average player will have a war around two, all-star players checking in around four, and a superstar MVP level player at six plus war. Beyond player evaluation, analytics also influence in-game decisions. Managers now have access to real-time data on player performance. Should the pitcher face the next hitter, or should he bring in a relief pitcher? These often hinge on the numbers. But it's not just about the numbers themselves. It's about the stories they tell. These statistics reveal the hidden narrative of baseball and the subtleties that often escape the casual observer. They shine a spotlight on the unsung heroes of the game and the players whose contributions may have gone unnoticed in the past. They empower fans, analysts, and even players and coaches to make more informed decisions and appreciate the beauty and complexity of baseball at a deeper level. <clears throat> As we explore the numbers behind hitting, pitching, and fielding, let's remember that these aren't just cold data points. They're the keys to unlocking the rich tapestry of the sport we all love. Thank you for joining me on this episode of Navigating the Numbers. I'm your host, Camden, and I hope to see you all next time.
Wow, thank you, Camden. That was a great information. I'm looking forward to learning much more about analytics from a, a ding dong's perspective here. You know, when I when I was in the '90s watching the baseball, we knew ERA and we knew strikeouts and we knew RBIs and we knew batting average um, and and slugging too. But uh, things have gotten really complicated today. I know Billy Bean kind of started this out in the early 2000s, but it seems like in the last 10, 15 years, it's really exploded. What can you tell me about that, Camden? Yeah, so Billy Bean did really get it going in the 90s, but it, it, the whole StatCast era, it didn't start until 2014, 2015. That's when they installed the cameras and the radar systems in all 30 parks, and we started seeing things like launch angle, exit velocity, um, all these other stats that we see uh, popping up on the screen when we're watching the baseball game. And, and those are stats we'll cover in future episodes as well. I'm looking forward to it. That sounds like fun. So around 2014, uh, MLB started keeping track of everything. We have more information we know what to do with. And, well, guys like me know what to do with. That's why I'm having you on, Camden. Cause, and then other guys, usually younger guys, um, just love this stuff. Uh, math oriented, some sometimes math oriented guys, which I'm not. So I'm so happy to have you on, Camden. Um, so you're saying war has a range, you know, 3.9 and 4.2 ain't that different. But if you're starting to get over one, uh, one, one war, uh, you're talking about a spread there, right? Yeah. So about one war apart, one to two war apart. Uh, you know, within half half of a war, players that are real close together, you know, it's it's hard to quantify really where they're different without digging into the other numbers behind those, where they are defensively, offensively, and everything else. But generally, if they're within about a war to a half a war of each other, they're they're around the same player. Anything above one war separation, and and you know, you can really start to tell the difference between players. Yeah, yeah, that's like in music. You know, you got a decibel and turn it up 10 decibels or, you know, it gets quite a bit louder. Sometimes you can turn it up by one decibel and, and they say you can't even perceive it. So um, thank you for that information. I, I assume you're going to go into a really in-depth uh, war segment with us that, again, is is for casuals here at Casuals Corner. The, the point here is, folks, we want to learn something. And, and I appreciate you, Camden, for coming on on that. I assume you're going to be talking war in the future. Yes, absolutely. I plan to go uh, in-depth on a few different stats as long as we keep this going. Um, but yeah, war is definitely one that we'll hit on. Excellent. Excellent. And I guess my last stupid question I promised you is, and I assume it's a coach, but who the heck knows this stuff? I mean, does Scott, I'm sure Scott Service studies it, but there's got to be some whiz bang kid or or something like that that tells them what to do how what do you know about analytics in the seattle mariners i well i know jerry depoto was hired because he was analytics driven uh and that was actually the issues he had in anaheim that's why he left anaheim is because that manager there mike sosha he did not like the analytics side of the game that's why jerry packed up his bags and left and came here and went to a club that would let him do his job like he wanted to do and that's when he turned us around, our team around, and we watched their team fall down with two superstars. So we know we've seen in practice what analytics can do. Um, I'm not sure where they get those numbers or or how they 
every team has a different algorithm and style they use. So not every team puts the same value on every player. No, I get it. I get it. Um, what I would suspect is Seattle Mariners have a front office crew that these guys are probably computer guys or numbers guys. And then I assume there's somebody on the bench who just understands the numbers inside and out also that can make real-time decisions or at least observations for the managers to make a decision. Is that right? Well, I think that's all set up with the scouting reports and everything beforehand. I know Scott Service plays matchups with his bullpen. We don't have a dedicated closer closer or a dedicated setup guy. He plays the matchup game, and that's all rooted in the analytics. What this pitcher is going to do versus this hitter based on their past performances, how this guy does against left-handed pitching, how this guy does against right-handed hitters. So they just play the matchups there and put whoever they think will do best in each situation into that position. That's great info. What about the people who say that teams are too analytically driven? They just overdo the analytics, don't know how to play small ball, don't know how to tough it out, don't want it bad enough. What do you say about that? My personal opinion is those people just don't understand analytics. So, and and these are hard numbers to grasp. You know, calculus was invented before statistics were. So this is just a hard concept for the human mind to grasp. I really think if people would take the time to learn these and understand them and understand why they're putting the people in the position they're putting them in and putting them, in, they're really putting them in the best position for the team and the player to succeed. I really think it's just a lack of knowledge. Well, the game's changed and we've watched it change in front of our eyes and and uh, in the past, to change anything, I mean, we're talking 95, you you couldn't change nothing about the game. They finally, and I know it wasn't 95, I think it was 92 or something, where they added the wild card. And oh my God, um, there was no celebrating or bat flips or any of that kind of stuff. The game's changing in front of our eyes today uh, in 2023. Um, and, you know, we've were a ton of different rules that I think most were successful. There is always pushback when people want to change things. I, I like these new rules and everything. It's time for the game to change. Viewership was declining, uh, not as much fan engagement. We really need to turn the game around before we lose it. And, and I think they've really moved in the right directions with, all, with, with the pitch clock, with the smaller bases and everything else. With the larger bases, you mean? Yes, the larger bases, my bad. <laughs> <laughs> no problem, no problem. I'm not here to pick you apart. I just want to... No, good, good catch. Uh, let's see. Um, so that's what I wanted to know today. Hey, thank you for joining us here today with Navigating the Numbers with Camden. Camden, I really appreciate you answering your questions, and and I really appreciate you breaking down this stuff for us, uh, just for folks like me to understand. No problem. I had a lot of fun. Thank you for having me on, and I'm looking forward to doing it again. All right, everybody, let's take you back to the show. Hey, let me just uh, swing a little curveball over to Brian. Is there any off-season baseball players you would like to see the Mariners go after this off-season? Yeah, you know, I, I think it's interesting. And obviously, you know, Otani's the, the big fish out there, biggest fish. And I think Cody Bellinger's, you know, the next one on that list. You know, he's put together a incredible season with the Cubs. Um, but, I, you know, when you look at it, obviously, 
you know, this season was in general disappointment that we fell short, you know, no doubt about that. But within that, you know, we were still only one game out. And, you know, I think the biggest issue there when you look at it is we had no problem getting runners into scoring position. It was just a matter of not being able to drive them in consistently. And so, you know, I think there's multiple ways to do this offseason. And if you look back, and this is the funny thing, is when you look back at the blueprint, okay, and this is just spitballing here, but you go back to 2017, or the offseason before the 2017 season, okay, the Astros, the rebuild finally come through. 2015, they made the playoffs. They had a very competitive, they won the wild card game against the Yankees. They played the Royals, who eventually won the World Series. They played a very competitive series against them. And everyone thought, hey, time is finally here. You know, there's nothing but going forward now. And in that offseason, before the 2016 season, this, their signings was Tony Sipp. They extended Colby Rasmus with a qualifying offer, and they signed Doug Fister, which we all remember Doug Fister. But at that point, he was <laughs> kind of a shell of himself. He was decent, but he wasn't, you know, game-breaking by any stretch of the imagination on a one-year, $7 million deal. That's all they really did. You know, they made a couple trades. They actually traded uh, away Jed Lowry. And they uh, they acquired Ken Giles. We all remember Ken Giles. You know, he was, uh, he was a decent closer with the Phillies and with the Astros for a little while. Um, which, ironically, they shipped out that one of those first-round picks I mentioned, Mark Appel, and a couple others to the Phillies. Uh, to get Kent Giles at that point. But that's that's the entirety of what they did before the 2016 season. They doubled down and bet on their young talent to take that next step forward and continue pushing them forward, making other playoffs, everything else. And as history would have it, they struggled. They they really struggled in 2016. They, uh, they really didn't get out of the gate well. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? And then they kind of put it together a little bit in the summer and then they had an under 500 September and they finished third in the AL West. So they bet on their young talent to take that next step forward. They struggled under the expectations and pressure. It was the first year that everyone said, okay, this team is actually supposed to do something. The weight of it, 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 it kind of buried them a little bit, but they finished third behind the, the Mariners, oddly enough in 2016. And then you go to the 2017, which, you know, 2016 sounds extremely familiar to what we just went through, doesn't it? I mean, we just had a really rough September after having a hot summer that put us in a position to contend again. It didn't pan out. Anyways, what they did, you know, you think about the Otanis, they didn't do that. They signed Josh Reddick on a, a three, four-year deal. Carlos Beltran for a, a one-year deal. And they signed a guy named Charlie Morton, who wasn't the Charlie Morton that we all know played for the Astros. He was kind of a journeyman. He really hadn't put it all together. Obviously, they changed something there when he got there, and he became a really good piece for the Astros. And that was a two-year, $14 million deal. It's not exactly an ace-level deal you put together there. On top of that, they acquired a shell of Ryan McCann from the Yankees in a salary dump. And that was really the entire offseason that they put together there. They didn't go big. They didn't do anything crazy before they went to 2017. And obviously, there's a lot more context within that season of how things went as well as they did. But 
they, they didn't go and over-engineer that offseason. They went out and they got smart pieces. They got veteran leadership in Beltron and McCann. And they signed a guy who did good at putting the ball in play, Josh Reddick. So I, I think there's multiple avenues this offseason to make it a productive offseason that really puts us in a better place next year. And I don't think that has to require getting Otani or Bellinger. I think it becomes a heck of a lot easier if you do. But I think there's other pieces out there that you could put into this offense to fix the depth issue that you're not playing Sam Haggerty in game 158 with the season on the line just because there's a left-hander out on the mound. I'm sorry. I like Haggerty, don't get me wrong, but he's not the guy I'm betting my farm on. It's just not. And so I think there's other names out there. Right. I think he's a very good piece, but he's a, to me, he's basically the 27th man. That guy you call up in September that gives you a little extra off the bench. He's a good runner. He can play some couple of different positions. He's a solid utility guy. He's not a guy I want to start games with, though. He's the guy at the end of the bench. And so I think there's there's various pieces. What a joke. Right. I mean, that was the thing. He was your designated hitter in that game. Really? Haggerty? Designated hitter? doesn't really sound like two things that should be said <laughs> together. Um, so, you know, when I look at it, and I, obviously this isn't the deepest free agent class, but I still think there's some names out there. And, and obviously, I think a piece of that depends on what some organizations decide to do. I mean, you look at the Red Sox, they just kind of overhauled their front office. Their GM just left. Do they keep moving forward? Do they take a step back? Are they resigning some of those pieces? You know, if we don't get Otani, one guy that I think would actually be a, a decent piece, and I'm just throwing a couple names out here, would be, I mean, Justin Turner. I think he's a he's a DH only at this point, but he fills that spot. He doesn't strike out a ton. He puts the ball in play. I mean, for his career, he's got a 15% strikeout rate. 15. I think this year being 38, it was at 17 but he still had a really good season for, for Boston. I think that that profile would be just nice to have around these young players that have a struggle with swing and miss and trying to do too much in the moment, which is, I think, Julio's biggest issue. I love the guy. I love his energy. But you can clearly see when he's pressing out there. And he was doing it in September. He was doing it in April and May. And this team's offense floundered because of it. I mean, add a guy with this type of plate discipline, this plate approach and Justin Turner, I think that can go a long way. You know, another guy that obviously he's also DH only, and I'm not just saying we get both these guys. I'm just throwing different names out. It's Michael Brantley. He actually grew up in the, the Washington area, if I remember correctly. And he has one of the best. He's just a professional hitter. The way he goes up there, the way he approaches everything. I mean, heck, after we, we swept them in Houston back in August, one of the comments that Dusty Baker said is we just need to get Michael Brantley back. He is the biggest piece we need in this offense to combat Seattle's pitchers. He came back and obviously they took two of three in in Seattle in September. And obviously it's not just bottling it up to Michael Brantley and that, but I mean, that's just how he's spoken about in the game is the way he approaches every at bat is something that I think this offense could really use. Um, another guy, I think he didn't have 
amazing season, but he put together a solid season. He's also a switch hitter. He can play first, which I I love Ty France, but he can't stay healthy. And he the way he, he, he well, I, but I think the biggest issue is the way he goes about his at bats, and it it serves him well when he's healthy, but it puts him in a position that he gets hit by pitch more than someone who was probably wearing a magnet on him if the baseball had metal in the middle because he he's all over on top of that plate. And the best way to combat him is to throw up and in, keep it close to his hands and jam him. Well, that leads to a lot of hit by pitch. And he gets battered and bruised and wrist injuries from it. And his effectiveness goes, goes down the drain. And honestly, he had a really rough year as a whole, even without that, I think. But, you know, I think that's been his biggest issue. And, you know, he's been a solid, serviceable piece up until this year and probably down the stretch last year after he got hurt and banged up his wrist. You know what, Tyler, you know how I feel about <laughs> Ty France. Where would you upgrade Tyler on this field if, if you, the trade market was open? Well, first base and DH are the obvious ones to me, not just because they were lacking, but because they're easier to fill. We're not asking for a catcher or shortstop. Yeah, so, you know, I've, I've looked at St. Louis as a trade partner. I, I still see um, San Diego as a trade partner, perhaps. Um, I still see there's a couple teams we could really get some power out of. Well, let me jump in here really quick because Brian kind of led me down a path that was getting me excited because Justin Turner was one of the guys I wrote down as three possible middle-of-the-line lineup type of dudes that could really help this ball club. Even at 38, 800 OPS, 23 homers, oh, and you're so, you're so right on his plate discipline. 2.16 strikeout to walks. That, is, that doesn't happen very often in today's era. No, it really doesn't. I just want to move forward a little bit. I'm a giant Michael Brantley fan. He always kicks the crap out of the Mariners when he's playing. But he's literally only played like 79 games the last two years. That makes me super nervous. But you really led me down the right path, my friend. I've wanted J.D. Martinez for two years now. He's an old guy, too, at 36, but 271, 33 homers, and an 893 OPS. Now he is playing with the Dodgers in much better weather and a stacked lineup, so I wouldn't be surprised at all if he came up here, if his stats went down a little bit, but that would still be a giant upgrade. And then my number one DH target right now, Jorge Soler. 31 years old, a 250 average, 36 bombs though, an 853 OPS, and only a 2.14 strikeout to walk ratio. All of the DH type of guys we talked about are way down the free agent list, and it's probably because no team expects them to really play in the field with any sort of proficiency, I guess. But I would be ecstatic if we got any three of these guys, and especially Solaire, just because of the 
age and I'm always worried, especially as a Mariners fan, AJ Pollock was a stud his whole career. Of course, the one year we get him, he's fallen off a cliff, but that's a, another story in itself. Same with Colton Wall. There you go. Yeah. Any other players you wanted to talk about that need to be replaced? Yeah. I mean, you know, I think if it, you obviously have to make a decision on Teo, are you, are you keeping him or are you not? Because <clears throat> if you're not, then obviously that's another hole you have to fill. Um, you know, to me, I think right now, I, I think with Gino's contract, unless you're doing something really wild and, and, and shipping him off somewhere, which I think when you're talking about the culture in that locker room, it, it seems like he's pretty tied into the center of that and part of the heartbeat there. But I, I think, I think Ty and I think the DH spot are kind of your main focuses as a whole. And obviously I think, you know, you decide what you do with Teo and then you fill that lot spot if you need to. And obviously we have some young guys there, but I think we need that, <clears throat> that right-handed pop from Teo. I, I'd like to see him get another year. I think he, he kind of settled in on the back half and, and played better for the most part. Obviously September, I, I think he kind of wore down more than anything else. That was the most games he's played in the season too. And obviously, you know, we kind of think of it as like, oh, they're a professional athlete you know, no big deal, but you know, everyone's got what they've been used to. And this is the most he was run out there. You know, any year he threw was with uh, Toronto. I think the most he played was, I don't have it in front of me. I want to say it was like one thirty, and that was one year. So I think that's part of the equation. You know, one of the names I was going to throw out there as far as a, a first base option. And, and I think ideally, you know, if I was, Drawing it up, and I knew Otani was off the tables, but we were still going to spend some money. I'd say you go get Bellinger and you get Justin Turner. They played together. They should. I'm pro- I imagine they're still good friends, and if they came together as a package, that, that's a solid combination back-to-back and covers your first base issue, and it covers your DH with, with much better played at or much better at-bats um, as a whole. But another first base option that, that I kind of saw out there is, uh, is uh, Heimer Condelario. He had a pretty good year with Washington. He kind of had a little bit of a, a regression when he went to the Cubs after the trade deadline, which isn't all that uncommon for guys that are relocating. Um, but he still put together a, a solid season. He's also a switch hitter, which would, uh, I, I think, make Jerry excited and, and Scott excited because he can automatically play the matchups. Um, but he had 22 home runs and his, uh, where'd he go? His strikeout rate was about 24%, which is not exactly low, but it's about it's a little over league average. And I think that was the only thing I was going to say on, on J.D. Martinez that concerned me. is This year, his strikeout rate went to 31%, which is the highest I think it's ever been for him. He's usually had much better. Uh, yeah, I mean, his career average is 24, but he spiked up to 31 this year, which is uh, just about on par with... Uh, Oscar, which was also a career high for him. You know, T. Oscar came to us in a trade. Uh, can't we just trade for a couple guys like that again, or or what do you see? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's certainly possible. I, I don't see a direct, obvious option. I, I know a lot of people point out the, the Pete Alonzos and everything else in the world. You know, the couple guys that I've seen mentioned they're all in the last year of their deal and 
everyone except for, I think it was Goldschmidt that got thrown out and Arenado that I saw the other day. Every other name is a Boris client, meaning you're not going to get to extend him. Uh, it's not going to be a sign and trade. It's going to be, a, you're trading him, you're getting him that one year, and then you see where the chips fall in free agency. And odds are you're just collecting the prospect from the, the qualifying offer because Boris is going to go take the largest deal. Is someone like uh, uh, Swanson worth a year? Someone like Teal? Is he, are they worth it for that time? You know, I, I mean, I think when you look at that trade and face value, and obviously Eric Swanson was a solid piece for us in the bullpen, but he was also the fourth, fifth option. And we traded the fourth or fifth option our bullpen. And obviously he became a much bigger piece to Toronto. And I think that's the advantage of how our system is built is you develop these guys and then you are able to use them when you need to, if you have a surplus, we had a surplus and we were able to move them for a slugger who was honestly, when you look at it on paper, better than what we got out of Hanniger, even when he was healthy. So having a guy that, was able to stay healthy, can put up the numbers he does. That looks like a great trade on paper. Unfortunately, you know, I think one of the biggest differences, and I think that goes across the board in some of the lineup, is he went from being the, what would you say, fourth, fifth guy in that lineup as far as key contributors. I mean, everybody focuses on on Vlad and then Bichette. I mean, I think he was probably number four number five on their their offense he's moved up to number two over here in seattle you know it was julio and then it was teo and that was those were your two big bats in the lineup and i think there was a lot of pressure that was probably self-inflicted more than anything no it was with julio where there was just a lot of pressing going on and you know i think many of us have said it many different times that the offense kind of seemed to go as Julio went. And whenever Julio was rolling and he wasn't just pressing and trying to do entirely too much and basically hit the equivalent of a six run home run when he was up to bat with no one on base or even just one or two guys on base that instead of just coming through with a big hit, he was trying to get the biggest of all hits and knock it out of the park. And unfortunately led to a lot of strikeouts and pop-ups and, hard ground outs. So he was just simply overdoing it. And I think Teo was doing that to a certain extent as well. And I don't know, it could be a factor of the part getting this player's heads too, because that obviously is a factor. And, you know, this bar poke ballpark, ah, excuse me, cut that. <clears throat> this ballpark is well renowned for, you know, being a challenge to hitters, um, which I think is part of an issue when it comes to free agency with us as well. Um, I think that was part of the issue is he's just pressing entirely too much. Tyler, I've got uh, Otani, Bellinger also. And I think, uh, Brian, we all agree we need to go out after Otani. Who knows how long that's going to take? I hope he's not really stringing people along. So um, I like Bellinger. I, I don't often watch other people's games or other teams uh, but I did catch a, a Cubs-Cardinals game, and Bellinger was the first baseman that really stood out to me that just made a really spectacular play. 
and other good play too is look like you know an artist out there whether uh, uh, compared to France who Neanderthal would that be right I'm sorry Ty. <laughs> um, very solid flaw. yeah yeah I'm sorry I'm sorry but and I'm not the most that ask athletic guy in the world either uh but boy i just like to see an athlete over there who carries a, a bfb and um that's where we need production jp gave us production i think we've all agreed that suarez is just there it's a spot that needs to be filled for the price it's you know we don't need another year of unless you know one of these top guys come come open uh soto would be nice but i don't think he's gonna sign uh ramirez that one actually has some legs doesn't it tyler how do you see your free agent list tyler well you just talked about two guys we would actually probably trade for right there and honestly eric i am so intrigued by both of them different reasons though for starters Eric, you know how much I hate these internet draft simulators, and my hatred went even further the other day because I typed in Juan Soto, and their numerical analysis told me that Prelander Barroa and Harry Ford would be more than enough to get Juan Soto. I mean, come on now. We couldn't give their GM enough whiskey in one night to make him pull the trigger on a deal like that. So if you see anybody on the internet saying trade simulator, simulator says this or that, just let it go. But I love those simulators. I, I do think Soto's a fit, though. I do. He only has, what, one year left on his contract, and he's set to make probably record-breaking money after that. So it might just be a one-year rental, but he controls the zone. He's an ascending type of player. So I love that about him. What's Jose Ramirez. Oof. Well, I don't... That's what I, we want to know, Tyler, is how much it's going to cost. Well... If Trey Turner's and Xander Bogarts are making over three hundred million on the lifetime of their contract, he's going to be well over three hundred. Period. So that's what makes me think he might be more attainable. But you got to be realistic. If we trade for Juan Soto, it honestly is probably a one-year rental. I don't want to be negative, Nancy, but are the Mariners going to be able to pay for another three hundred plus million dollar player? No, but I mean, what would he cost the team in a trade? I think the starting point's Logan Gilbert plus. And I mean plus good guys, not throwing guys. Like, I, it drives me crazy. Let's trade Marco and Robbie Ray for Juan Soto. Yeah, like, they're going to do that. You know, um, take my trash, it starts right? with Logan Gilbert, absolutely. And then plus some good young guys. And they might even demand Gilbert and Wu or Gilbert and Miller. So that one's a little tough. Jose Ramirez is, what, 30 or 31, Soto's 24, 25, so maybe Ramirez is more attainable. The only thing I don't like about him is that his he's got five or six years left, so you're paying him top of the, top of the market type of money when he's 35, 36, but then you also have the security of having him for five or six years 
where I think that Soto's honestly going to be a rental if we traded for him. Ramirez is... Or Ramirez has an 854 career OPS. Career. Soto, unbelievable. 946 career OPS. But we got to look at everything within its context. And, you know, Soto's going to be so expensive. I don't see it. Another guy I want to look at really quickly then is possibly Yandy Diaz. He broke the Mariners' hearts in that weekend series down the stretch versus Tampa Bay with a clutch home run and a clutch double. I'm very scared about him, though, because this year he's hitting 330 with 22 bombs, a 932 OPS, and only a 1.45 strikeout-to-walk ratio. But let's get real here about Yandy Diaz. His career OPS is 819, and prior to this season, his career high in homers was 14, and that was four years ago. This guy might be one of those pop star one-hit wonders, so I'd be careful about him. You know, um, I feel like we should do like a, a part one and a part two and a part three of the episodes here. Um, you know, I told you these baseball conversations, when you talk to people who are passionate about it, they go on and on. Was there anything that anybody wanted to bring up or is there anything we haven't really talked about? Uh, and I'll, I'll throw that first to you, Brian. Yeah, I mean... Honestly, I think this is a, a very uh, critical point we had into here in this offseason. And that's not to say that if we don't get it right in this offseason, that the whole thing is is ruined, blow it up, whatever. But I think there's, a, there's a, a spot here to kind of put us back over the top and really help this team take that next step. And I think a part of that is is finding some some senior leadership and finding someone older um, to help guide this team and and give Julio some of that key advice as that veteran to say, hey, I, you know you're you're on the way to, to superstardom, but you just gotta settle down in these key moments. Um, you know we talk a lot about service and and you know I I don't think that this was the right point to necessarily let him go and i'm sure there was plenty that were surprised he wasn't you know there's a handful out there that are all aboard that 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 train for sure um but you know when justin and jerry came out partway through the year and flat out owned the fact that they just quite didn't do enough last off season and owned it that early on i, I don't think there was ever a moment that or anything service could have done this year necessarily uh, up and to the point of the wheels completely falling off and us only winning like 60 games or something. I, I don't see that there was going to be a point. Um, that said, you know, obviously we do have a pattern of slow starts and I, I don't know that that's necessarily Scott. I don't know what that is really. It's, it's one of those strange things that just keeps happening for some unknown reason. And I think that's something, I mean, that, that, that I think that definitely contributes to it, but you know I think. And then they then they send us back east every year. They send us back east the first couple series, so you're playing in cold weather there too. I, I maybe I'm grasping there, but go ahead. No, I think that 
that contributes to it. But, you know, I think they need to figure out something to alleviate some of that. Maybe some of that is some, some additional senior leadership. But yeah, we can't keep digging ourselves in a hole. And and obviously there's the whole debate about it's early and everything else that gets posted. But and I think there's a misunderstanding in what that that sentiment means. It's not saying those games count for any less. It's just saying there's still time for them to get things back on the back on the tracks and rolling and make something out of it. You know, in twenty two we did just that. You know, we had that slow start and we got back on track and then we made it into the playoffs, finally ended that drought. And this year we had that run and obviously we ran out of gas. And it was something that, you know, I, it's funny, you know, I, I talked to you a lot and I talked to a handful of others and, and I kind of saw this coming before it happened. And I, obviously I didn't think that the offense was going to completely taper out very much at the end like it did. But I, but I think the the warning signs were were already there on the dashboard about the starting rotation and going into September. You know, Wu and Miller were already over their innings for the year before we started the month, and you know, Wu is a year and a half removed from Tommy John, so we were going to have an issue. And I think it was something that if we were able to keep Hancock healthy, or if he was able to stay healthy. It would have alleviated that, you know, Wu, when he had some extra rest, looked a lot better. And I think the one or two starts that we stretched him a couple extra days, he he looked a lot sharper with that extra rest that if we had the six man with Hancock, maybe we're looking at a very different September because of a handful of spots. Our offense did do enough, but our pitching got so worn down that it wasn't enough. You know, we look at our ERA in September and it ballooned because Wu was burnt out. And I think even to some extent, you had, you know, Kirby still worn down. It was year two. He also set another innings record for him. And he's still building up. So you had all three of those guys and you had a handful of short starts. And as soon as you start seeing that, the bullpen starts taxing. And everyone looks and says, well, we traded Seawald. Yeah, we we traded Seawald, but that's not really where the, the cracks are showing. I mean, we've had different points earlier in the season this year and last year where a bullpen really struggled and everyone's like, what happened? Our bullpen used to be so great. When you look at it, the starters are only averaging like four innings. That's what happened. It's not that the talent changed or they're having a bad year. It's they're just getting overused. And that's even when Seawalt was there. It's just a, it's a byproduct. But I, I think one of the things that always gets an issue with service is looking at bullpen usage. And I think the biggest thing that you see, and I'm, I'm speaking generally, not speaking about everybody, but is the difference of thinking about, I need to win a game tonight versus I've got a 10 game stretch without a day of rest. I need to be able to win those games too. And so Scott can't just look at, I need to win tonight's game because you can go win that battle and then lose the war of completely tanking the rest of that, that road trip or homestand because you just burn out your whole bullpen to get one win and you set yourself up for failure for the next nine. And 
you know, you look at that critical road trip in September where we're already kind of at that tail end part and it's down to the point of what do you got left in the tank? And you come out in New York and you got a combined total of, what was it, eight innings from Castillo and Kirby Saturday and Sunday in New York. I mean, we had just come off the series against the, I believe it was the A's, where Kirby had to miss a start. And so Weaver went out there. He only threw a couple innings. The bullpen had to eat the rest of it. And then you go to New York right after that. And you have those two outings to start that road trip. The bullpen was screwed the rest of the way. I mean, they were put in a no-win situation. They were all taxed and burnt out. And then you're going to play at a hitter's park in Cincinnati. And then you go down to Tampa Bay with a really good lineup. Well, at least it looked like a good lineup at that point. Not so much playing Texas in the wild card round. But, you know, the bullpen was burnt out. And then everyone says, well, Scott's not managing things right. He should have pitched X, Y, and Z. Well, he's already pitched three straight days or two out of the last three. You can only do so much without that guy's arm falling off. Brash already led the majors in appearances and get a handful of guys that weren't far behind. You got to protect guys. Yep, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, Tyler, did you have any any thoughts that we hadn't quite talked about? And thank you for that, Brian. Uh, it was really interesting um, what you're telling us there. Tyler? I'm just going to piggyback on what Brian said. I've said this several times now, but we lost 372 innings pitched with Marco and Ray going down this year. And he's so right. I always talk about keeping your bullpen fresh. And then when your starter is able to grind out innings when he's not pitching well, is crucial for 162 games. So I, I just want to also give our bullpen a little bit of a break. Matt Brash was the most used reliever in the league this year, and he got a bunch of rest because he was used that much. So you got to look at the pitching staff and the team and the season in totality, not just in one or two inning spurts. We have talked at nauseum about different players today, Eric. So I want to go on a little cliffhanger. I have a couple of middle market targets that I'd love to talk about next time, but let's leave them hanging here. And I just want to say thank you so much for everything that you've uh, talked about with us tonight, Brian. Yeah, no, I appreciate you having me on and I'm happy to do it again and, and talk about some more names and free agency and bright future ahead absolutely we will be refreshing throughout the off season I haven't decided you know if we have enough content uh we'll go every week and uh uh we're hoping to have enough content want to let you know we're going to do a little bit of seahawks stuff too uh and we'll we'll be having unique guests for that stuff going on too so check that out uh, Tyler's going to help me a whole bunch because I, I watch more Mariners baseball than I do uh, Seahawks football. Uh, but uh, we're looking forward to that. Uh, Brian, we've just, I really wanted you to come on for a long time. And, and, I, and I appreciate you 
uh, you know, because it's not easy, ladies and gentlemen, or whatever. So um, anyhow, cut that out, Indy. Um, I guess what I'm saying, Brian, is I'm really happy you came on with us tonight. No, I, I really appreciate y'all making time and and uh, let's find uh, a way to make this happen. It's been uh, long overdue. You and I have been talking about this for a while now. <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, the sophomore slump has happened. That is 2023. Me, Tyler. And Brian think that next year should really be a grown year, should really start to mature, should really start to be focusing on the ALCS and further. Uh, the year after that, hopefully everybody's like these veteran stud veterans. We'll see what happens, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you for joining Casual's Corner here tonight. Bye-bye.